Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we visit the north of England, taking in the only mainland community in Britain to be cut off by the daily tides in Lancashire, a lakeland castle where everything was yellow, the Georgian port in Cumberland that inspired New York, the home of one of England's greatest heroines in Northumberland, and in County Durham, the oldest railway bridge in the world. Stop 1. Sunderland, Lancashire Seven miles from the noise and bustle of busy Lancaster, set on a low-lying spit of salt marsh and mudflats beside the cold Irish sea at the mouth of the River Loon, there lies a distant, windswept, unreachable place that twice a day is sundered from the land by rising waters. Sunderland, they call it, and it is the only mainland community in Britain to be cut off by the daily tides. Like its better-known namesake in County Durham, Sunderland was once a teeming port. Today, it is a lonely, huddled cluster of stern, grey-brown Georgian houses, their backs to the sea, their inhabitants weather-beaten, independent and self-reliant, lovers of peace and seclusion. Visitors are allowed, if not exactly welcomed. There is a grudging car park, which spends most of its time underwater and those who lose their car to the tide are given scant sympathy, for you are warned to consult the tide tables before abandoning civilization to drive along the rutted, puddled, mile-long causeway across the marshes from Overton. If you tarry too long, then you must be satisfied with the company of waves and seabirds, curlew, peewit and heron, until the tide releases you. There is no pub or shop. There are few signs of life. It is a glorious place. Sunderland is mysterious, eerie even, in its solitude. But it was not always thus, and there are haunting whispers on the breeze of a proud past, 
ghosts that walk the byways, a sense that destiny had once come calling here. It all began right at the start of the 18th century, when Quaker businessman Robert Lawson decided to develop Sunderland as an entry port for Lancaster, seven miles further inland on the River Loon, which at the time was fast becoming the third busiest port in England. Ships for Lancaster could either wait at Sunderland for the high tide or unload their cargo there, thus avoiding delay and the slow, torturous journey up the winding river. So successful was the venture that for three decades Sunderland was Lancashire's busiest port. Sunderland's moment of real world resonance came in 1701, when the first bale of cotton to arrive in England from the New World was landed there. The cotton stayed on the quayside for a time because nobody in Sunderland actually knew what it was. The cotton imported into England up to that time was composed of a mixture of linen or yarn and looked nothing like this. Eventually, the American cotton found its way to Manchester, and the rest is history. From that bale grew the Lancashire cotton industry, and from the Lancashire cotton industry grew machinery to process it, and from that machinery grew factories to house the machinery, and from those factories grew the Industrial Revolution all thanks to little Sunderland. Who'd have thought? For 250 years or more, what was called a cotton tree grew in front of one of the cottages on the quayside. It was said to have grown from a seed escaped from an imported bale of cotton. The tree was, alas, blown down in a gale in 1998, but two young trees have sprouted from the roots and in a few years' time, Sunderland will once more have a living reminder of its historic significance. I have to say it's a little hard today to imagine Sunderland as a titan of world trade. Its fortunes waned when Glasson docks opened across the river in 1787. But if you look carefully at the houses along the old Sunderland quayside, you can see that they were once buildings associated with the docks, warehouses, a pilot's office, a custom house, even a former pub, the Ship Inn. And there is one other spot that people come to Sunderland from far and wide to see. A short walk from the village at the end of a footpath to the somewhat bleak beachfront, there is a single grave, marked with a simple wooden cross, in a field overlooking the sea. Surprisingly, for such a desolate spot, the grave is beautifully tended, with fresh flowers and pictures, tiny wooden crosses and painted pebbles, placed there by local schoolchildren. In 1736, a ship arrived at Sunderland from America. 
As its cargo was being unloaded, the captain went off to conduct some business in Lancaster, leaving his African cabin boy quartered in one of Sunderland's two inns to await his return. Whether it was because the boy thought he had been abandoned, or because he caught a chill from the unaccustomed cold, he was taken ill and died, and since no one knew if he'd been baptised or not, he was buried by the sea in unconsecrated ground and forgotten. Sixty years later, James Watson, a retired headmaster from Lancaster, came across the story, and it touched his heart. He raised funds for a bronze memorial plaque to put on the grave, and it has remained there to this day, inscribed with an epitaph that ends... But still he sleeps, till the awakening sounds of the archangel's trump new life impart. Then the great judge his approbation founds, not on man's colour, but his worth of heart. Stop 2. Lowther Castle, Westmoreland. Lowther Hall in Westmoreland, the extent of prospect, the grand surrounding objects, the noble situation, the diversity of surface, the extensive woods and command of water, all rendered by a man of sense, spirit and taste, the finest scene in the British dominions. This was the view of the first Earl McCartney, the diplomat best remembered for his observation that Britain controlled an empire on which the sun never sets. Well, the sun did set on Lowther Castle, at least temporarily in 1935, when the last Lowther to live there, Hugh Lowther, the fifth Earl of Lonsdale, left. Seat of the Lowther family, since the 12th century, the estate, which lies just south of Penrith, had reached its greatest extravagance of some 3,000 acres, including the largest enclosed area of parkland in England, under the 5th Earl. But his spendthrift ways meant that he could no longer afford to live there. The estate was requisitioned by the army for tank development during the Second World War, and then in the 1950s the roof of the castle was removed and the shell used as a pig pen. The grandest house in Westmoreland had become its most spectacular ruin. But let's go back a bit. The more modest Lowther Hall was turned into Lowther Castle by the first Earl of Lonsdale, William Lowther, between 1806 and 1814. The architect was Robert Smirk, who went on to design the British Museum. Lowther Castle was Smirk's first major work, and he must have lost his nerve after that, for the British Museum is a most diffident affair, compared to the stonking pile of 365 rooms, one for each day of the year, that is Lowther Castle. 
The north front of the castle, for instance, is 420 feet in length, 50 feet longer than the grand entrance to the British Museum. The first Earl and his wife were great patrons of the arts and invited poets and artists to stay at Lowther for as long as they liked. Lowther in thy majestic pile are seen cathedral pomp and grace in apt accord with the baronial castle's sterner mien. Thus did the Lakeland poet William Wordsworth describe Lowther Castle in 1833. He was a frequent visitor, as was the poet laureate Robert Southey and the painter Joseph Turner, whose painting, Lowther Castle, Evening, now hangs in the castle's restored art gallery. Subsequent earls added of their plenty, and by the time it passed to the fifth earl in 1882, Lowther Castle was one of the most magnificent stately homes in England. Hugh Lowther, 5th Earl of Lonsdale, was an extraordinary character, known variously as Lordy, or England's greatest sporting gentleman, or the Yellow Earl. As a younger son, nobody took much notice of the boy Hugh, and he never expected to inherit much, so after leaving Eton he ran off to join the circus, then went buffalo hunting in America and married the daughter of the Marquis of Huntley, much against her family's wishes, obviously, and finally spent what little money he did have on an ill-fated cattle ranch in Wyoming. In 1882, however, Hugh's older brother St George unexpectedly died of an unknown illness, and overnight Hugh, at the age of 25, went from being beset by scandal and bankruptcy to becoming one of the richest men in the world owner of 75,000 acres of the Lake District, vast Cumberland coal mines and a bulging portfolio of townhouses and country estates, the jewel of which was Lowther Castle. Hugh determined to use his startling good fortune to live life to the full and set out to cut a swathe through the society that had previously ignored him having a series of affairs with prominent actresses of the day and entertaining politicians and royalty at Lauda, including the kings of Portugal and Italy and the Kaiser. Generous and good-natured, he was known affectionately by his staff as Lordy, he loved cigars to such a degree and spent so much money on them that he is one of only two men to have a Cuban cigar size named after him, the other being Winston Churchill. As England's greatest sporting gentleman, he founded the National Sporting Club to oversee boxing, organised the first boxing match with gloves, donated the Lonsdale belt for British professional boxing champions, and is even rumoured to have himself beaten the then world heavyweight champion of the world, the American John L. Sullivan, in a match organised in great secrecy in New York. He served as the master of the Quorn and Cotsmoor hunts, was first president of the International Horse Show at Olympia, 
founded the Our Dumb Friends League to care for working horses on the streets of London, now known as the Blue Cross, and was the honorary president of Arsenal Football Club, whose away strip is yellow in honour of the Earl of Lonsdale's favourite colour. Hugh's passion for yellow led him to becoming known as the Yellow Earl. His bedroom and many of the rooms at Lowther Castle were decorated yellow. His fleet of cars were all yellow, his servant's livery was yellow, and he even had a hothouse at Lowther in which to grow yellow gardenias for his buttonhole. He loved cars and was a founder and the first president of the Automobile Association dictating that all AA vehicles were to be painted in yellow. He stated late in life that his greatest thrill had been to see the Kaiser arrive at Lauda in a brand new Benz motorcar, driven by something never before seen in the Lake District, a chauffeur. As the cherry on the cake, the Kaiser let the Earl keep the Benz, which was yellow naturally. All this jollity did not come cheap, of course, and the Yellow Earl eventually got through his entire fortune. The properties had to be sold off, and Lowther Castle was abandoned to its fate. The fifth Earl of Lonsdale and his wife had no children, so when he died in 1944, what was left of the Lowther estate went to his brother, Lancelot, the sixth Earl, who was forced to auction off the contents of Lowther Castle in the biggest country house sale of the 20th century. Fortunately, the 7th Earl of Lonsdale had a good business head and managed to put the estate back in good order and together with English heritage, the Lowther estate has over the last 20 years rescued Lowther Castle, restored the gardens and stabilised the castle shell turning it from a dangerous romantic ruin into what is classified as a managed ruin. Constructed in the woods next to the castle is a vast adventure playground called the Lost Castle, the largest wooden playground in the world. The fun-loving Yellow Earl would surely have approved of that. Stop 3. Whitehaven, Cumberland Did you know that New York's grid pattern of streets was designed by Sir Christopher Wren, architect of St Paul's Cathedral in London? No? Well, it was. Let me explain. Over the course of the 17th to 18th century, the small fishing village of Whitehaven was transformed by the Lowther family, yes, them again, into a port for the export of their Cumberland coal. Docks were constructed and a new town laid out, and by the middle of the 18th century, Whitehaven had become the second busiest port in England after London. Now, in designing their new town, the Lowthers were inspired by Christopher Wren's vision for the rebuilding of the City of London after the Great Fire in 1666, which utilised a pattern of straight streets in a right-angled grid. Wren's plans for London were never fully realised, 
but the Lowthers were able to start Whitehaven more or less from scratch, and the result was, and is, along with Edinburgh's new town, the most complete example of planned Georgian architecture in Europe, with a simple grid pattern of streets that makes the best possible use of the restricted land space. Whitehaven did a lot of trade with America, principally rum and tobacco, and when the commissioners of New York were considering how to expand their city across the tight confines of Manhattan Island, they looked at Whitehaven, admired the smart wide streets and the simplicity of the grid pattern, and adopted it for New York. Hey presto, Christopher Wren's vision for London realised in New York. And Whitehaven on the unfashionable coast of Cumberland, remains one of the most attractive and least known Georgian towns in England. It has over 170 listed buildings. As you stroll through its streets, you might well think you're walking around Bath, with the added attraction of the seaside. Whitehaven was also the scene of one of the only two naval skirmishes on this side of the Atlantic during the American War of Independence. In 1778, it was attacked by the American privateer John Paul Jones, who was in fact a rapscallion from Kirkubri, just up the coast in Scotland, who had fled to America after flogging one of his crew to death. Not on purpose, mind, but unfortunately for Jones, the man turned out to be from an influential Scottish family. Anyway, Jones attacked Whitehaven by sea, hoping to destroy a fleet of coal ships at anchor in the harbour. Thankfully, the town had been forewarned by one of Jones's own men, and the American was able to afflict little damage, before fleeing across the Solway back to Scotland where he planned to kidnap the Earl of Selkirk instead. Talk of kidnapping brings us to the story of Jonathan Swift, author and Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Swift arrived in Whitehaven from Ireland in 1668 as a sickly one-year-old, having been kidnapped by his nurse, a Whitehaven girl, who had returned to her hometown from Dublin to attend the deathbed of a relative from whom she was expecting a legacy. The nurse had been loath to leave her beloved charge behind in the care of his struggling widowed mother in their impoverished Dublin home, and so she took the young Swift with her and once safely ensconced in Whitehaven, wrote to the boy's mother telling of what she had done. The mother, not wanting her son to be exposed to another perilous sea crossing, told the nurse to keep him until it was safe to return to Dublin. And so Jonathan Swift lived in Whitehaven until he was four years old, by which time he had learned to read every chapter of the Bible, so he was clearly getting a good education. His home was a grim-looking 17th-century place called Bowling Green House, which still stands high up on the cliffs overlooking Whitehaven. 
and when, 50 years after he had left Whitehaven, Swift wrote his satirical masterpiece Gulliver's Travels, about a shipwrecked traveller who is held prisoner by a race of tiny people on an island called Lilliput, it was Swift's memory of watching the seemingly tiny people of Whitehaven moving around in the town far below his home that provided the inspiration for the Lilliputians. Whitehaven, from New York to Lilliput, inspiring the world. Bamborough, Northumberland Bamborough, ancient capital of Northumbria, has it all. Glorious beaches, a spectacular castle, the resting place of the Apostle of the North, St Aidan, in the church he founded himself in 635 AD, and memories of one of England's greatest heroes, Grace Darling. Grace was the daughter of a lighthouse keeper, William Darling, and she lived with her parents and her brothers and sisters on the Longstone Lighthouse, located on the Farne Islands about six miles offshore of Bamborough. Early one September morning in 1838, Grace, who was 23, was woken by a violent storm. As dawn broke, she looked out of her bedroom window on one of the upper floors of the lighthouse and spotted the wreck of a paddle steamer, the Forfarshire, bound for Hull from Dundee and run aground on the rocks of Big Harkar, another of the Farne Islands about half a mile away to the west. As the light improved and using a telescope, she was able to make out figures clinging to the wreckage and the rocks around, and so she roused her father, and, reasoning that it was too rough for the lifeboat to put out from sea houses on the mainland, they clambered into their tiny Northumberland cobble and rowed out through the mountainous seas to the scene of the wreck. take a long detour to keep to the lee of the islands, which made the distance more than a mile. And when they got there, Grace fought to keep the cobble afloat, rowing back and forth to avoid crashing against the reef, while her father helped five of the survivors off the rocks and into the boat, including a woman clinging on desperately to her two dead children. After delivering them safely to the lighthouse, Grace's father went back the remaining four men. It was three days before the weather abated and the survivors could be taken to the mainland. The dramatic rescue captured the imagination of Victorian England and Grace, slight, pretty and endearingly modest, became one of the first celebrities with her picture on the front pages of every newspaper and reporters clamouring for her story. She was awarded a silver medal for gallantry by the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, the RNLI, 
and although she tried to escape the attention by continuing to live out on Longstone, people from all over the world sent her letters and marriage proposals and gifts. Even Queen Victoria sent £50. People requested locks of her hair, and artists made their way out to the lighthouse to paint her portrait, which then ended up on postcards and chocolate wrappers. Four years after the rescue, Grace became ill with tuberculosis, and in October 1842 she died at just 26 years of age. Her death at such a young age made her story even more poignant. Books were written about her, and William Wordsworth himself penned a poem about her deeds. Hundreds of well-wishers attended her funeral in Bamborough when she was laid to rest in her family's burial plot in the churchyard of Bamborough's St Aidan's Church. A distinctive memorial to Grace, designed by Anthony Salvin, was placed nearby in the churchyard where it could be seen by passing ships, and her effigy is inside the church, set by a stained-glass window dedicated to her memory. Not far from the church is the Grace Darling Museum, which tells her story and has on display the actual boat in which she rode out to the wreck. Its fragile appearance vividly brings home what courage Grace Darling must have summoned to go out into the raging storm in such a flimsy vessel. Stop 5. Causey Arch, County Durham Not eight miles from the centre of Newcastle, in the deep, dark, wooded valley of the Causey Burn, there lies one of the most wondrous sights of the modern world, Causey Arch, the world's first railway bridge. It was built in 1726, long before America had started to dream of independence or Captain Cook had sailed to find Australia. A group of coal mine owners called the Grand Allies were financing a railway line called the Tanfield Railway to transport coal from their mines inland to the River Tyne, and they commissioned a local mason called Ralph Wood to construct the bridge. He came up with this beautiful, graceful single arch 103 feet across, the largest single-span bridge in Britain for at least the next 30 years until the old bridge at Pontypreeth in Wales was erected in 1756. Causey Arch carried two tracks of wooden rails across the steep-sided gorge 60 feet above the burn a main track for the fully laden wagons and a subordinate track for the returning empty wagons. The wagons were horse-drawn, which meant that the main way needed to be as level as possible or downhill, 
so that the horses would only have to pull empty wagons uphill. There is an example of one of the wagons on display at the east end of the bridge, and it shows how mighty heavy they must have been when full. Just downstream from Causey Arch, the railway passes along another even earlier example of Georgian engineering, designed to keep the track level, an embankment 1300 feet long and 90 feet high above a culvert through which the burn flows. This was built nine years before the bridge in 1717, making it the world's first railway embankment. A three-mile section of the Tanfield Railway, running between East Tanfield and Sunnyside in Gateshead, along much of the original route, has been restored and now operates a steam train service on Sundays. The steam trains are kept inside the world's oldest working engine shed, built in 1854 at Marley Hill, close to Andrew's house, the first station from Sunnyside. The next stop is the Causey Arch station, from where it is but a two-minute walk to the bridge, and there is no doubt that the best way to arrive at the world's oldest railway bridge is by the world's oldest railway. Melancholy stalks Causey Arch, even though it was a masterful engineering achievement by Ralph Wood. No one had any experience of building such a huge structure in stone, for nothing like it had been attempted in Britain since Roman times, and Wood had to rely on what little he knew of Roman technology. His first effort, a wooden bridge he had put up the previous year in 1725, had fallen down almost immediately. Wood became nervous that his new stone bridge would suffer a similar fate. He needn't have worried, his elegant slender bridge proved not only to be beautiful but strong and safe. For the first 10 or 12 years it was used by up to 930 wagons a day, 50 yards apart and passing over the bridge every 20 seconds, a phenomenal workload for any structure let alone an experimental one using untested technology. And still it stands today, Causey Arch, solid and durable after almost 300 years. Ralph Wood, alas, didn't wait to see if his wonderful bridge would endure. Terrified it would collapse, he took his own life, allegedly jumping off Causey Arch itself to his death in the gorge below. Well, that concludes our tour of the north of England. 
In the next episode, we visit Yorkshire, God's own country, taking in the Roman walls of York, the scene of the naval battle that secured American independence, the village where man first flew, and the setting for the world's first moving pictures. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne, with guest star Rupert Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sIneverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert, to my executive producer Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. Music